0: This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Salt. It's what we sprinkle on our scrambled eggs to give flavor and needed nutrients to our diet. But too much salt can be fatal for our coastal forests. In a new study, researchers identified critical levels of soil salinity, the salt in soil, that can kill plants in freshwater forests. What is making the soil salt shaker work overtime? Increased salinity in coastal soils as sea levels rise due to climate change. In the journal Plant Ecology, an interdisciplinary team of researchers described the phenomenon of ghost forests, in which once vibrant woodlands are now occupied by the dead skeletons of the resident trees, poisoned by soil salts that encroached from ocean waters flowing inland. Certain plants, like poison ivy, are more likely to grow in the transition zones between forest and salt-loving wetlands as indicators of landscapes in transition and possibly in need of help. Our guest today, Steve Anderson, is a forest ecologist who studies aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems in the short and long term. Steve,
1: welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for spending time with us and our listeners. Steve, I know you're an ecologist with over 10 years of studying and understanding how natural and human-induced disturbances can cause resilience or not in terrestrial and aquatic habitats. Now, I'm not an expert in this realm, and so I want to make sure that I'm on the same page as you in terms of the basics of your paper. Can you tell us uh, in terms of plant response to seawater or to intrusion of more Uh, more salty water in the soil. Uh, What are the, what is it about the fact that there's a lot of salt in there or that it's very concentrated that negatively affects some of these plants?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, there's several different reactions that plants will have to salts. Right. And I- Tell us
0: about those. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Great. You know, and it can either, you know, generally when it's ions of salt water, it's often a toxic response. Although low levels of things like calcium and magnesium, we often think of as being beneficial for plant growth and reproduction. In this study, you know, we, we looked at sodium and chloride, um, mostly sodium, because that's what we had measured, but also at calcium and magnesium, because, you know, like I mentioned, a lot of other areas like mountainous areas, you often think of those as being beneficial uh, for p- plant growth. But because the levels are so high in a low level, you know, low lying coastal um, wetland, they get really toxic, you know, and the, the other aspects of the impact of seawater on plant growth is it can change how plants take up water and use water. So that's, that's kind of, you know, the toxic impacts of seawater. And then there's kind of the, we call it the ionic Uh, Impact So the change in how a plant will use water. So that's another way we can actually, we didn't measure that in this study, but that's another way that scientists often think of um, plants, you know, reacting to having more of these salt ions in the soil or in, you know, in a solution.
0: I see. And I know that, you know, when I look at, when I visit a beach or something, or I I look at vegetation along the coastline, I see that there are many trees that grow there, you know, coconut palms grow there. And there are, seem to be plants that are actually able to tolerate high levels of salt. So how how did they go about dealing with high soil salinity?
1: Yeah, some, some plants, you know, when you're going to the beach are, they do, there are very uh, tolerant species out there. And Oftentimes, you know, to keep it kind of at base level here, they those plants are just really good at either excluding salts from taking those salts up into their roots. And then some plants can actually take up those salts through their roots, and they can actually pass those ions out, out of their leaves, um, as, as one example. So they, it doesn't really impact how they function. Whereas, you know, a lot of, a lot of plants that You know, maybe are a little tolerant, or we could consider them as being sensitive generally, but can tolerate a little bit of those salts. Like I said, maybe just don't take up those salts through their roots; they can exclude them to a certain degree.
0: Got it. So some plants are able or have evolved mechanisms to deal with that high level salt by either keeping it out altogether or passing it right through their bodies and then extruding it out of their leaves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating.
0: It is pretty darn fascinating. It is, and I think that you know one of the things about the paper that I so enjoyed reading was just kind of getting aware of that whole situation um, in the forest that and and wetlands that you've been working in. And one of the things I was wondering about is if if you could, for me and for our listeners, if you could describe kind of just the sort of general look of the forests and wetlands that you you have been working in for the, for this for this study.
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, generally when people think of coastal areas we think of the beach right which is right which i do you know and i do too because they're beautiful and it just there's something captivating about them and um you know a lot there's a lot of research out there that's done work kind of in those very coastal area you know in in more of a marine setting but in north carolina you know for folks that are familiar with probably the outer banks that's a pretty well-known area that's a very narrow strip of land, the ocean on one side and then the sound just inside a very, you know, definitely less than a mile wide area. And in this in the sound region of North Carolina in kind of northern North Carolina, this, the salts in that in those sounds are, you know, anywhere from between five to 15 parts per thousand. Where the ocean is about thirty-five parts per thousand. Wow. And parts per thousand meaning you know amount of milligrams per liter of these salts. So yeah, it's it's much less. This region is pretty rural, but it's it's mostly surrounded by uh, freshwater marshes or brackish marshes that have you know when we mention marshes generally right you think of the areas where you know, sometimes they're tidal, sometimes they're not. Um, So there's sometimes there's a shift in in water level. Often there's not. Just inside of those marshes are actual forests. And so in the paper, we describe forested freshwater uh, wetlands. This whole area about, I think about two to three thousand square miles, We're, we're only, you know, below three meters. And for context, that's you know, think about a basketball hoop that's a, a little, that's about three meters high. And so right.
0: I never I never <laughs> thought about that as a measure, but that helps me see or yeah. think or imagine, I guess, what these forests really look like.
1: Yeah. And so it's, you know, they look like forests, but they're often very wet and there is groundwater just below the surface or you see, or you see the water on the surface oftentimes.
0: And so you know, I was really intrigued by the term ghost forest I guess because I'm I'm actually a forest ecologist and I you know have a, I feel a kinship with forest yeah. ecosystems. The idea of of a forest that just has these skeletons is sort of frightening and awful to me. But can you can you kind of describe what it's like to walk through a ghost forest?
1: Yeah, they're pretty eerie as you describe, you know, and they are expanding at a very alarming rate. Uh, but to walk through them, you know, I'm I. Tend to be the person that tromps around and waders, going out in the field to collect data. Right, um, lucky which, you, yeah. yeah. Which is wonderful, depending on the time of year that you're there. Yes, um, I can imagine. As you can imagine, mosquitoes and other, you know, uh, biting insects and whatnot. But yeah, there, you know, you see these remnant tree bowls, you know, tree stems sticking up. But yeah, it's it's generally there's often flooding associated with these areas because as plants die off, you know, there's not as much uptake of water into the atmosphere. So, you know, depending on where you are, it may be, may be totally wet and may be um, periodically dry throughout the year. But yeah, it's very viney and um, a lot of insects and very, very humid in the, in the summer.
0: Sounds like a great place to work, right?
1: <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> no, no,
0: I I understand. No, I think well, we we you know, it's part of ecological research, of course, is encountering mosquitoes and mud and so forth. Um, but I think what one of the things I was really curious about as I read your paper was about how hurricanes and how drought and how human infrastructure. Might be driving forces in terms of creating these ghost forests. But I've also been reading in your article and elsewhere that climate change has a lot to do with this inundation of freshwater areas by saltwater. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between climate change and saltwater infusion.
1: I mean, to really uh, address your question, I guess, you know, when we think about climate change, what I think about is, you know, we're seeing an increase in storms and a severity of storms and hurricanes do have a huge impact, um, in coastal Carolina, but also, you know, droughts, I would say have just as much, if not even more impact in these forests that we're working in. Really? So uh, that's so
0: interesting. Why yeah. is that? Why would drought have a, 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 why would a drought exacerbate this intrusion of saltwater?
1: Right. So, so as to, you know, and I'm, I'm, Always learning more and more about this myself as well, but the, um, as things dry out further inland, you have a lot more concentration of uh, water in the sound area. So the often the sounds are pretty shallow, and so the salts become more concentrated.
0: Oh, I see, I get it. Yeah,
1: and got it. And so the you know as as groundwater reduces further inland, that more salty sound water actually comes in as, you know, you've probably, you mentioned this term, you know, saltwater intrusion or incursion. That's what that is. And so a lot of times saltwater intrusion becomes more of a problem during drought because the groundwater further inland is there's less water there, so it almost acts as like a sponge to pull in the more. I see. More I can now picture water. that. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, it's sort of like the dry part. There's the gradient between the dry and the wet. Then exactly serves as kind of a suction, kind of pump that that will actually bring in that water.
1: Yeah, and so when you add, when you think about that, right? When you think about how climate is causing more droughts and more hurricanes, you're, these areas are really getting nailed at every turn, right? And just from those two kind of climate um, impacts. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, too, the the increase in infrastructure in this area through channel creation, which a lot of those channels have been there for, for decades, uh, it allows for more of that sound water to, especially during hurricanes, to move in. To move in, for, to move in exactly yep. right. Because here there are these pre-dug Channels, I
0: guess that that humans have created, that then the salt water can move into more easily, and then that in turn has a negative effect on on the coastal forests that 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 occupy that space.
1: Yeah, and that you know the and there are in some areas there are constr- control structures to uh, allow water to move out of that those those areas and not move in, but oftentimes those maybe don't function quite the way they were designed to or maybe maybe they need a little more investment for improvements but there is a lot of work being done on trying to improve that you know that process too
0: well that that's encouraging. Yeah. Um I was wondering if you could just you know in a few sentences and I know this doesn't do justice to your whole paper because you you've been dealing with such complex questions if you could summarize what what were the takeaways from your study what did what did you and your colleagues find out in terms of the effects of of increased soil soil salinity on these forests and these wetlands.
1: Yeah so like I'm like I mentioned I I think the main goal one of the main goals for me was to come up come up with a more quantitative uh, way to measure how how salt tolerant or how salt sensitive plants are in these regions. Because oftentimes we say they're salt tolerant or they're not, and that you know that that doesn't really help us figure out what sort of species you know we may look for in different areas that are vulnerable. The main, one of the main questions was, is salinity or elevation, are these, are these really main, you know, we say drivers of the composition of a forest? Yeah, oftentimes we think of, you know, when we say drivers uh, with, uh, for example, salinity in this context, that's a, an abiotic factor. So a lot of times in science, we think of abiotic and biotic. So biotic being biology, you know, plants, animals, abiotic being more, you know, like climate, Um, things like soil salinity or soil moisture or temperature or, you know, things of that nature. Um, So what kind of abiotic factors are actually structuring these communities in these coastal forests? So that was one of the main things we looked at and we found that Salt, indeed, was the main contributor to how these forest communities are structured, which is really interesting.
0: Yeah, that is. That is. You know, one of the things that I know about um, research is that we do the research for research's sake and for learning more, sharing with other scientists. But we also have to be aware that people out there who aren't in academia or science also can gain benefits from this kind of research you know what what NSF calls broader impacts
1: Absolutely. and i'm
0: wondering as you've been working through this project and going through the process of writing it up for other scientists what can you say about why for instance local people on the outer banks might care about the results of your research and how would people why why would people in general care about this why would it be important to them
1: sure yeah and you know there there i will add that you know there's some other folks at NC State and other organizations have really, uh, there's there's some really good work out there, you know, looking more at so, sort of the, the, so, the social and socioeconomic impacts of things like saltwater intrusion, which is really exciting. I would say for this, you know, region that we are working in, it's often a very, you know, there's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of folks that rely on, we we like to say ecosystem services, but, you know, things that are of the natural world that really benefit human, you know, human good and, um, you know, work and consumption and those sorts of things, things like fishing and um, agriculture, a lot of forestry and timber harvesting in this area. And so there's multiple industries that you know, can be really heavily impacted by saltwater, you know, becoming more prevalent in soils, in particular agriculture and forestry. And a lot of the areas in this region, there is some restoration work going on as well. And, you know, folks that live in this region, I think, could really benefit from knowing what sort of species, you know, if, if, if a landowner is wanting to protect their property from saltwater intrusion, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of different scenarios that we could come up with, but, you know, if they need to plant specific trees to maybe offer structure to their, their land, you know, information like this is really valuable for, for, for knowing how, you know, if, okay, I'm going to spend several thousand dollars to um, kind of reforest an old field that's kind of going dormant. You know, this this sort of work could really benefit restoration efforts, but also hope, hopefully it would be beneficial for other other folks as well. So that's that's Fantastic. One thing. I, I, yeah,
0: no, that's that's really good. I hadn't made that connection with agriculture and fishing before, but it it's, seems obvious now. So that thanks for that for that that sort of connecting this very basic research that's published in a very basic plant ecology journal and realizing that in fact there are impacts that that would be beneficial to people who might use this information.
1: You know, another goal of this paper was to use ground-level plants as this sort of indicator um, or indication of saltwater intrusion becoming more prevalent, you know, more salts building up in soil. And I think that could be really valuable for folks who are living in these areas to know um, if they're their land is experiencing um, increases in, in saltwater using plants as opposed to doing really high-cost um, analyses or, you know, That uh, makes sense of of
0: using plants as indicators rather than saying, well, now you have to spend $100 a soil sample to figure out whether, you know, what the levels of sodium are or chloride are in those soils." So let the plants tell us what's going on with the the environment at that point. Um, I have one other question, which um, is, is a bit of a pivot from what we've been talking about, but I think it's. I think it's an important one. I note that you're very interested in an area that is a bit different from just doing your research, but equally important to the scientific work that you reported on. You stated that, that that there's been a long history of systemic environmental racism and systemic economic inequities that have had really destructive impacts on green space access, on diversity, on flooding, and human health in both urban and rural communities. And so and that you're interested in somehow. As a researcher, as an individual, as a member of Duke University, you're you're interested in somehow working to ameliorate this inequity that we see in the scientific enterprise. And I was wondering what prompted this very important interest, and and what you might be doing in terms of learning more about how we can resolve those inequities.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely becoming an increasing, increasingly important um, issue, and and an uh, important topic for me personally um, I you know I'll say part I think part of it for me is naming that I think it's really important to to name inequity when when we know that it's a very prevalent component of our society I also say that you know I'm I'm in the learning phase not that that will ever end but I, I think just personally being open to learning and to listening and to um, you know, observing, I think is, is kind of where I I think I'm still in that phase, but I, um, I started working in addition to working with Duke university. I was working with a local watershed association here in Durham, North Carolina. uh, Yes. I read about that. Yeah. Ellerby Creek Watershed Association. Yes. The uh, Ellerby
0: Creek. Yes. Yeah.
1: So we, you know, in Durham, North Carolina, there's, um, there's a lot of, uh, systemic, um, environmental injustice and, you know, segregation along, along like rich history in the city. And so I think being a, being a member and a resident of this community now for the last 10 years, I just haven't really been able to not think about it. And uh, w- through working with uh, Bree Creek Watershed Association, I've, I've been able to do some trainings and to uh, really connect with a lot of residents who have grown up here. And um, yeah, I, I I'm in that learning phase, right? But I, I, I do know, you know, the background in conservation and uh, conservation biology and and forestry, you know, a lot of those those um, fields were initiated by white men, and and so yeah, for me, it's it's mostly naming that and opening myself up to learning how uh, different policies and particular racial um, racially driven policies have you know, impacted conservation and people's access to different resources, not only financial, but, you know, ecological. Yeah. And how, you know, in going back to the coastal coastal plain, it is a very rural there's, there's a lot, a large black community and there's a lot of um, unjust practices in, in regards to uh, farming practice and, um, You know, there's a lot of CAFOs, which has been in the news a lot lately, Um, and these are causing a lot of uh, human health impacts and and largely impacting Native communities and Black communities in these regions. And so, yeah, you know, I'm I'll say it again. I keep I'm just learning and I'm trying to learn how to apply these, you know, these sorts of topics to my research and to whatever work I do in the future. So I really appreciate you asking me about that.
0: Yeah, well, Steve, I, I appreciate your, I guess I would say your humility and uh, now being aware of of these inequities that you're, as you've said several times, you're in the learning phase. And I think it's really wonderful that you haven't said, oh, I've solved it. I've I've done this, this, and this. So I've checked my checklist off and I know I've done my piece to, to increase diversity or restore equity or whatever. So I, I appreciate both your humility as well as your efforts. And I think... All of us in science have a long way to go before the scientific enterprise becomes as diverse, as equitable, and as inclusive as it as it as it should be. So, thank you for those thoughts. I, I'll, I'll end with just one last question, Steve. I know that you have quite a range of research interests. Your projects uh our you know lion conservation biology and freshwater wetlands and plant ecology in uh, community led research and ecological restoration and I'm just wondering what are you going to be working on
1: next <laughs> <What a> wonderful, <laughs> all those wonderful
0: things. Yeah.
1: Especially on a Friday. Yeah. I, you know yeah. <laughs> that's a great question. I I mean any you know any way that I can I can be learning from the natural world and allowing um, access to other folks to learn more about the natural world is is where i want to be but i i've been doing some work on the along the floodplains of the roanoke river which is really exciting uh, that's a large river in east it runs from the blue ridge mountains of virginia down to north carolina uh, to the albemarle sound so i've been doing some some work in floodplains, um but also you know I, I mentioned the watershed association i've been working more in urban ecology and um, directing some students here at Duke to learn more about urban ecology and green space access and those sort of things. I've really enjoyed all that work. And so we'll see, you know, we'll see uh, what comes next. Um, But I do hope that I can keep working in the coastal plain um, on these sorts of issues, um, because they're really fascinating and complex, which makes it, you know, a good challenge is always it's always fun to, to see where Yes, it is. <laughs> where it yes, it is.
0: You're right. Well, Steve, we wish you and your colleagues the very best with your research and your monitoring and your work to bring equity to the field of ecology and science. So thank you so much for your time and your expertise.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tiso, And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.